The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febctoday.org. All the things I've gone through, I figure that the good Lord's got more work for me, so if He gives me another day, I get to work and what I say. I was a kid, I say I have two, two bosses, the good Lord and my wife, and I listen to both of them every day, so keep me on track. His distinguished career in the U.S. Air Force covered decades of service to his country as a fighter pilot and leader. Next on First Person, you'll meet retired Major General Carl Schneider. I'm Wayne Shepard. Welcome to this week's program. Before we get to the interview, please take a moment to visit us online when you get a chance. At firstpersoninterview.com, you'll find more about our guest, but you'll also find an archive of past programs you may have missed. Plus, you'll learn more about the Far East Broadcasting Company, which makes this program possible. There at the website, you can register to receive a terrific online devotional from FEBC that will tell you listeners' stories from around the world that tie into Scripture verses and offer a fresh devotional every day. Go to firstpersoninterview.com. Now retired Major General Carl Schneider served from the end of World War II all the way through the Cold War. You'll hear him tell his story, but since this is Memorial Day weekend— I started by talking to him about the men he served alongside in war who did not come home. And I asked him if he visited the families of those who gave their lives. Yes, I sure have. Primarily in Korea because uh, we lost so many good friends there that I'd been with all the way through pilot training and through combat. Uh, But also with some friends from Vietnam. Mm Mm-hmm. In your book, you describe several close calls, and you actually watched men crash their planes and die. That has to be a horrible experience for you. Well, it, it's one of those things you're so so focused on doing your job, and it's just uh, it's very emotional. I, more emotional when you reflect back on it than it is sometimes at the time. What do you say to a family whose uh, son or husband has been lost in war? Well, I think the main thing is just uh, tell them, what the life was like, what what their son was like in the when I knew him and in combat, and what a great person they were. We had a wonderful group of pilots in both wars, and uh, just to build them up, let them know that they, their time was not in vain. And uh, of course, in uh, Korea, uh, when I first came back, many folks didn't really care about the war, and they said it was not worth it. Now, when I give talks, I say, well, you ask 50 million South Koreans whether it was worth it or not. They're mm-hmm. now living in freedom. So just try to be friends with them and stay in touch with them. I've, I've maintained contact over many years with uh, several of the families. Yeah, I understand you actually bonded with some of those families. I uh, sure did. One in Florida, uh, just like part of the family, uh, uh, one of the nieces just moved to Nashville and I was over at their house for lunch. They gave me a, a birthday party, and oh. they, she just—they uh, called me Uncle Carl, and uh, I'm just like part of their regular family. <laughs> well, Carl, you went from enlisted private at the end of World War II to major general in the Air Force, and we want to talk about that career. But it started uh, in a cotton field, literally in Texas. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And uh, my brother and I hated the farm work, except for driving a tractor, a car, or motorcycle, and riding horses. All the other was just pure drudgery, milking cows and chopping weeds. So we uh, saw an old airplane come over one day, and 
and the new acrobatics, and I turned to my brother. I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm getting out of this cotton patch. So <laughs> he, he ended up in the Air Force also. How old were you at the time? I don't know, somewhere around 9, 10, somewhere in that area. Uh, and when did you first fly in a plane then? I mean, 9 or 10, you weren't, you weren't able to do much about it, but when did you start flying? No, I had never flown. My, I guess I had a short ride with my brother. He got a private license before I went in the Air Force. And uh, I think I flew one or two flights with him in a, a Ronca Champion. But my first real flight uh, was in a T-6, a 650-horsepower engine, when I got into aviation cadets uh, pilot training. Oh, boy, that's... Like a, like a B-17 to <laughs> yeah. a 19-year-old kid. That's jumping right into the the fire from the frying pan, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, uh, I know your uh, path to becoming a fighter pilot uh, didn't start with flying planes. How did it start? I wanted to served my country. My mother and my dad had served in World War One, and as we were growing up, my mother always said, you boys are going to serve your country. And, and so we just had that in our mind all the way. And uh, so I went down to the recruiting office and told the old sergeant I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And he said, get right, right sign right here, son. We'll get you right in. Well, you know, recruiting sergeants, I, I was a fish there and they could <laughs> sucker reel me in. <laughs> turned, turned out to Pilot training wasn't even open. This was right after World War II. We had thousands of excess pilots. So I ended up going to basic training, then to a tech school up in Denver and became a an armament mechanic and then was assigned to a B-29 unit, the one that uh, had previously dropped the atomic bombs in, in Japan mm-hmm. and served there until I got orders uh, uh, later to, to uh, pilot training. So when did this transition to pilot training begin and how did that come about? I mean, you, did you have to convince someone? Well, I had to, they reopened aviation cadets. And uh, so I was the first one, when I found out about it, I was the first one down at the office to sign up. I wanted to uh, go into the aviation cadet program. At that time, you didn't need a college education. You just had to be a high school graduate. And I had one year of college and ran out of money. And uh, so anyway, I had to take all the tests, which are pretty tough, physical, mental, emotional, and all the other things. And Passed that and was assigned to uh, Randolph Air Force Base or Randolph Field, it was called in, in San Antonio initially. But eventually you got to uh, start flying planes. What was the first plane you flew? It was called the T-6, and it was a, uh, a World War II airplane that was the advanced trainer in World War II. And Air Force, in their wisdom, uh, knew that we'd be going into jets, so they wanted to. we were an experimental class. The uh, first one after, uh, first cadet class after World War II. So we started off in the advanced trainer, T-6. Flew that for about 220 hours, and then our last 80 hours were in the P-51, which was the main combat fighter in World War II. So they really accelerated our training, and, of course, the washout rate was uh, 60%. So not too many made it through. It's really a tough program, but... It prepared us well for the speed and so forth of jet jet aircraft uh, as after we graduated. Yeah, I think most Americans, when we think about World War II fighter planes, we think of the P-51, don't we? Yes, that was one of the main main air, aircraft, mainly in Europe. And then, of course, later in, in Japan, they used to fly long-range missions all the way to Japan from the islands in the Pacific to escort B-29. So it was a main fighter the P-51 and the P-47 were the two main uh, tactical fighters in World War II. Now, when you joined up, this is actually pre-Air Force, isn't it? 
one year before we became the U.S. Air Force. It was still the Army Air Force when I went in, and we got commissioned. We still wore the old Army pinks and greens, they called them, uh, uniform, and then uh, transitioned to the blue uniform after we became a separate service on 18 September 1947. My goodness, so you're actually part of history. <laughs> That's remar- remarkable. It really is. Well, I, I'm technically a World War II uh, veteran because I went in. The official end of World War II, official end, was uh, twenty-one or 31 December 1946, a year and a half after peace treaty was signed and uh, the surrender was signed in Tokyo Bay. It took a year and a half to demobilize 16 million men and um, take, uh, dispose of all the equipment, aircraft, tanks that were scattered all over the world. We had uh, Italian, Japanese, and German prisoners working on farms all over the United States. They had to be returned home. Many thousands of war brides that, that soldiers had, had wed overseas, they were had a right to come home. So it took a year and a half to sort it all out. Anyway, I en- enlisted on 18 September 1946. So I'm officially a World War II veteran. So it started but, with uh, World War II, and it went all the way through the Cold War then, the, your career. Well, I set on nuclear targets in uh, in Europe. We set on targets and fighters uh, in Europe for 30 years. Uh, the bombers got all the credit, but most folks don't know we were really kamikaze pilots. At the war, it started with Russia. We had uh, we were prepared to fly nuclear weapons into Eastern Europe, and you had enough fuel to deliver a nuclear weapon, and and that's it, and bail out. You were never coming home. So. People say they make a big deal about the Japanese kamikaze pilots, but we were kamikaze pilots for 30 years and jet fighters in Europe and the Pacific. Was it difficult to make the transition from uh, a uh, prop-driven plane to the jet fighter? No, it was a piece of cake for me. I saw the <clears throat> jet in the morning and went uh, read a little manual on it, and watched the takeoff speed and so forth, and the ops officer took me out the airplane afternoon and, and gave me a pre-flight and put, told me to get in the cockpit and uh, had the... Uh, Shooting helmet. Well, I borrowed his helmet, I guess, <laughs> uh, because we didn't have jet helmets at that time. And uh, got in the cockpit, and I, he said, you know how to start it? And I said, well, I think I remember what I read it this morning. He said, well, I'll start it. So he, he reached in and started the airplane. Next thing I knew, he hit me on the shoulder and said, go fly, and pulled the ladder down and walked back in operation. So <laughs> I, I took off, and I said, this is a piece of cake after the P-51. It's nose wheel story, a nose wheel landing gear, or nose wheel gear, and... Uh, centerline strut thrust which was uh, a real problem with the p51 because it had so much power and so forth but anyway it was a piece of cake i went up did acrobatics came in and and uh, shot landings and walked in operation and the ops officer said oh you survived and that was <laughs> those were the days and if you killed yourself you weren't any good anyway just oh, get rid man. of them in a hurry so oh, my pretty, goodness. pretty brutal way to do it yeah you make it sound so easy but it had to be Really, uh, really quite a task, and uh, times are different now, I bet, aren't they? Absolutely. My my grandson's a captain in the Air Force in, in, in uh, F-15s, and uh, he's it's taken almost, uh, I think, three years to, to be fully combat ready, and that's <laughs> that's quite a difference. Of course, airplanes are more complicated now, but quite a difference to the days when I started. When we talk about flying by the seat of your pants, you know what that means. That's right, yeah. You you had to navigate by dead reckoning. If you didn't reckon right, you're going to be dead. He's retired Major General Carl Schneider of the U.S. Air Force, and we'll continue talking with him next on First Person. I'm so grateful for the grace I receive while listening to FBBC all day long. 
I cried listening to God's message multiple times. Just one of millions of grateful people who listens to the Far East Broadcasting Company in her own language. You can sign up for a free online daily devotional from FEBC, telling more listener stories, while at the same time it encourages you from God's Word. Receive this online devotional without obligation when you visit firstpersoninterview.com. My guest is retired Air Force Major General Carl Schneider, good friend and the author of two books. The first book is his life story, Little House on the High Plains, story of growing up in Texas, his memoir of family living during the uh, times of the Dust Bowl there in the Great Depression and World War II. And then his second book, Jet Pioneer, a fighter pilot's memoir, Major General Carl G. Schneider. You are dedicating the proceeds of these books to charity. Why are you doing that, Carl? Well, I donated to veterans, different veterans groups, because I, a lot of these younger Afghanistan, Iraq veterans, and some of the Vietnam veterans uh, have some uh, pretty serious issues, and I thought it was a good way to, to help some of them get back on track. So I work with uh, uh, colleges, universities, and individuals and veterans groups to uh, just try to help the transition, get them back, on, back in civilian life, and, and get the education or skill, and then get good jobs. You flew combat missions in both the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Talk about Korea and your service there. I was on Okinawa when the war started, and I just finished my tour there and was just ready to come home. And the wing commander came in and, and uh, said the North Koreans have invaded South Korea and uh, said, you guys, several of you guys are eligible to go home if you want to. You're, you finished your tour, but he said, you'll probably be back over here, so why don't you just stay, and, and uh, we'll probably be going up there pretty soon. So. We all stayed and moved up to uh, uh, Itazuki, Japan, uh, in, I think, September of 1950, and flew a lot of missions right around the Pusan perimeter, which was just the very corner of South Korea that we were still holding. Flew a lot of missions there, and, and then uh, after the Incheon invasion, we moved up to uh, it is, uh, up to Kempo in uh, Seoul and flew uh, missions out of there. And then moved back to Itazuki after the Chinese came in, and then the group finally moved back up to Korea after the war, after the war stabilized a bit. We glorify fighter pilots, but there wasn't any glory, was there? No, it was tough. It was uh, it was the coldest winter they'd had in Korea in a hundred years. It's just absolutely miserable, and of course we're short of parts. We'd uh, sort of like we are right now. We had uh, practically demobilized the military, so we were. Uh, had some tough times there, and the quarters were, were not good, and it was miserable <laughs> conditions. and uh, So it was not a fun deal. And then many missions, you knew one guy out of four wasn't coming back. So mm. it was a pretty tough time. I read in your book that 22 of 32 pilots were lost in your uh, section. Yeah, that was uh, most of the guys I'd gone through pilot training with and through uh, two assignments. So they were just like brothers. You, it was really painful to... To lose them, and and then of course it uh, was it doubly painful to come back and have to visit with all the families and go through it all again. So that was a very tough emotional time. But you didn't have to do that. Why did you do that? Well, we'd made an agreement when we we all agreed that we we'd go on to Korea with the with our group in in Okinawa. So we got together and agreed that whoever survived, which we knew not all of us would make it, would visit uh, the other guy's family. So. We all sort of divvied up the, the ones we'd lost, and I visited several of the families, and 
uh, got to uh, know him and have stayed in touch with him. In fact, I was just over in Lebanon, Tennessee, giving a talk a few days ago, and one of my good buddies was killed over there. I tried to find the the family I'd visited when I came home, but they had all passed away. So mm. I had stayed in touch with them for a few years. But it, I think it gave closure to a lot of the families to know that uh, that that you'd served with their son, and he served honorably. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that. Uh, that's remarkable. And in addition to those who died, several became POWs. Have you been in contact with them since? Uh, yeah, the our commander got shot down, and uh, I stayed in touch with him. He he was POW. He came back and worked for Sandia Corporation. They lost a leg when he bailed out, evaded uh, for a while, and then Gan Green set in, and they just sawed his leg off with no anesthetic in North Korea. Hmm. And uh, but he survived and and uh, lived another fifteen or twenty years. Well. Your interest in Korea today, South Korea today, and ministry in North Korea is remarkable because you are uh, supporting the Far East Broadcasting Company. I would imagine it dates back to your service in Korea. Is that correct? Well, it, it did, yes. Uh, I had a lot of friends there. I trained a lot of the Korean pilots right after we came home from Korea. I had 13 young uh, captain and, and I think 12 lieutenants came to my base, and I was detail- detailed to uh, train them to fly jet fighters. They'd been flying P-51s during the uh, in the Republic of uh, Korea Air Force. Anyway, I trained all of them, and we had them over to our home, and it really took great care of them. Twenty years later, I went back, and the captain's now a four-star commander of Korean Air Force, and the others are all generals. So I had about anything I wanted in the Korean Air Force. They, they <laughs> yeah. opened the door and said, you go fly anything you want. So, yeah, I bet so. That, that's, <laughs> that, that's a great story. Well, in addition to combating Korea, you flew in Vietnam, which, you know, just blows our mind that you started at the end of World War II and went all the way through the Cold War and passed. Talk about Vietnam for a moment. Well, I was had a fighter squadron out in uh, Arizona, and I got a call one day from a general up in uh, headquarters in, in, in uh, Langley, and he said, uh, uh, you've been selected to go to Vietnam and set up the Air Liaison Ulster Forward Air Controller Program. And I said, where's Vietnam? This is 1962. He said, well, they call it Indochina. We didn't have any publicity about that. Hardly, the, hardly heard the name. Anyway, I went over there and and set up the program with the uh, uh, Vietnamese Air Force and the Vietnamese Army. Uh, this is a coordination program of air and ground support for the forces there. And then I flew with the Vietnamese Air Force and then uh, went out with the Vietnamese Army on, on missions and and then helped set up a lot of uh, camps up along the Laotian-Cambodian border for special forces that were uh, coming in and uh, set up their air request net. So I got to be in just about every nook and cranny in Vietnam. It was uh, hmm. a, a very, a very exciting. And uh, uh, I got one of the uh, one of my young lieutenants now went on that to be uh, very notable. He's now on Fox News. Tom McInerney. Oh yes, was one of my young lieutenants. And I had some really great young fighter pilots working for me over there. In service to your country, you did move around a lot. Uh, That had to be very difficult for your family at times. Well, luckily, I had a wife who was very supportive. She was teaching school in uh, Las Vegas when I was flying F-86s. And when we were getting very serious, I said, well, now here's the deal. I said, I'm going to stay in the Air Force. I'm going to fly every airplane I can get my hands on. And if we move a lot... uh, 
you're going to have to be prepared for that because if a new airplane comes out or a new job, I'm going to volunteer for it because I like a lot of excitement. So <laughs> I said, if we get promoted up the line, it'd be a lot of social affairs. And I said, if you want to do that, let's go. And she said, if you don't say so right now, she said, oh, it sounds great to me. And she never complained about all the moves we made. I'd come home and say, we got orders to Timbuktu somewhere. She said, okay, let's get back. And, uh, Tell the kids we're having an exciting new adventure. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we were married for 44 years. Unfortunately, she passed away in 1999. And uh, But she was a, a great Air Force wife. And now the Lord's given you Carol by your side. I met a few, few months later. I met a beautiful young lady. And we uh, dated for two years. And I went over to her house for dinner one night and went home and, and looked over my checklist there, and I, I can expand on that later, but I said, why don't we just fly to Hawaii tomorrow and get married on a beach at Sunset? Said, let's go. So we did, and we've been married uh, 17 years now, just had our 17th anniversary. I had a wonderful time. Yeah, it's a great love story. You have stated that you believe the Lord has guided your entire life and protected your life during all those combat missions. Can you elaborate on that a bit, Carl? Well, I just I had a very strong uh, uh, spiritual childhood. My folks were very, very uh, dedicated uh, Christians, and and I've just uh, figured all the time that the good Lord's taken care of me, and I I really don't worry a lot. I all the things I've gone through, I figure that the good Lord's got more work for me. So if He gives me another day, I get to work and do what I'm what I say. I was a kid. I say I have two two bosses: the good Lord and my wife, and I listen to both of them every day. So yeah. Keeps me on track. And I assume you listen to the Lord through the reading of His Word. Scripture has meant a lot to you, hasn't it? You bet, yeah. I've been involved in a lot of different men's men's Bible groups, and, and we went to the base chapel uh, while we were in the Air Force, but I've, we've been on been in regular churches at Arizona and now in, in Nashville. One of my good friends was Billy Kim. That he was uh, ran our men's uh, Bible study when I went back over to Korea. And so he's been a good friend for many years and visited in our home, and we visited them in Korea many times. So it's, I've just had a strong—we have a great group now that meets at Daryl Waltrip's home every Tuesday morning. have about 70, 70 men. So it's, a, it's been a great comfort, too. And we had a chaplain that was great in Korea. Uh, he'd always come out the end of the runway. We'd have a, a short uh, chapel service before each mission, and he'd come out the end of the runway at in his Jeep and salute us when we took off every day. So that was a great comfort. Carl, even in retirement, you are giving back through a lot of volunteer efforts. And I just want to say, first of all, thank you for your service to our country. And second of all, uh, as a brother in the Lord, thanks for what you're doing today. Well, I always say it's a lot of fun, except you're getting shot at. That wasn't a lot of fun. But no. other than that, it was just a great adventure. Retired U.S. Air Force Major General Carl Schneider. He's written two books, one a biography called Little House on the High Plains, the other a memoir of his career as a fighter pilot titled Jet Pioneer. We'll place links to both books on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. It's always an honor to visit with General Schneider and be reminded of those who serve our country with distinction. He carries a real burden for vets today, and you can read more about that when you follow our links at firstpersoninterview.com. And then I invite you to receive a free 30-day online devotional from the Far East Broadcasting Company. Over the course of 30 days, you'll receive a devotional to your inbox that will inspire you with listener stories and challenge you with the Word of God. Register without charge or obligation by visiting firstpersoninterview.com. And look us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson... 
I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person. First Person.